Now, Trish is a high school teacher from Surrey, British Columbia, and she's been teaching for 30 years. 30 years. Congratulations, Trish. That's amazing. Um, and she's going to help answer some questions on the topic of children and technology. How do we balance the overwhelming amount of technology options for developing kids, teenagers, and even our own selves as adults? We're all impressionable. How do we respect the privacy of our teenagers while keeping them safe, strong, and independent? Is an iPhone a privilege, a safety measure, or a deterrent from real human connections? These are just some of the questions we will discuss today. Trish, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about this technology and, and how it interplays with with everyday life you know what do you notice in school how do you relate to people who are so immersed in this way of connection well I would say that it has become increasingly difficult in about the last five to six years and pretty well every staff member that we talk to says the same thing and we're actually focusing on that in our professional development at at the moment, uh, because it is it is at a crisis point. We're we're at the point now where kids can't learn because we know from the research that it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to think deeply and creatively while at the same time being distracted. All the research shows us that. Right. And, and the other frightening part is is that as you and I know, as every parent listening and any professional listening, people that employ young yeah. millennials. No, um, they can't focus on any particular task for very long if they have a smartphone with social media beeping and notifications coming in constantly. The, the brain is not wired to do that. The brain can only focus deeply on one thing at a time. And, and that is the frightening part is a lot of people don't understand that. And so they think, yeah, I'll just check my messages and I'll get right back onto my paper because it makes it very, very difficult to do. They can't actually. Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible, to be honest. And so for a long time, I, I teach a whole unit on tech addiction in my uh, psych class. Mm. And um, it's a course that I developed with my students. And for the last five years, I've been doing a similar program. And, you know, always changing and adding new, as soon as new research comes up, sharing with the kids and then always asking them what they feel and do they, how they sit and how they see themselves. And I'll always yeah. have kids say technology is not a problem for me madame I put my phone in my bag and it's gone uh, right and say I am so compelled to check my technology and so we talk a lot about you know why that is and what what they think's driving that behavior and a lot of times they don't know what's driving that behavior and and I think that's why you and I in the past have talked about conformity and I know we'll talk about that later on today so that's that's a difficult thing when every single person is doing it but I think also that depth of creativity and that ability to go deep places is we're losing that. Not just children in high school, but young adults and anybody. Adults our age can also become addicted to their technology. It's not mm. just inherent with teens. The problem is, is that teens' young brains are still forming. 
right? Right. So we know that between the ages of about 16 to about 25, they're going through another major brain death where synaptic pruning is happening and their prefrontal cortex is developing. And that's where the rational thought happens. So if they are constantly um, uh, reinforcing the synaptic connections, right, which is where those thoughts happen to drive towards technology, then they cannot actually develop the other avenues to uh, develop maybe the thought for creative writing, you know, those kinds things. And so that's really important. And I remember Sherry Turkle, who's a famous uh, writer, speaker. She was on the front of Wired magazine in 1996 at the birth of the internet. That's how big she was. And in 2012, she gave yet another TED talk. And this time it was about the internet and technology and how it's negatively affecting her students at MIT. And she's got several really good books that I recommend for your listeners, but one of them is called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry. Reclaiming Conversation? Yeah. And, and she's a, got a couple of book, good books, but that one's a really good one about understanding the role of technology in our children's lives and in our lives in general. But basically what she says, and she was a, when she wrote this, she had been teaching for 30 years as well, but at MIT. Right. And she said, my students no longer write in, par- in, um, in essay format. They write in paragraphs. Their thoughts are disconnected and disjointed. They don't flow. She says, I can no longer find students that can write fully and deeply and develop a thesis from beginning to end. And that's incredibly powerful information coming from MIT. Some of the most students in the United States are going to this university. And these kids think that they can multitask, but actually we can't. The the brain research shows it. We can't multitask. We're not, you know, I was reading and I, and I don't know, you might know uh, numbers, you know, better than myself, but I, I was doing some research on this and I, I read that approximately 8 trillion texts are sent every year with an open rate of 99%. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. No. And the typical response time is under three minutes. Right. And texting obviously is uh, the preferred form of communication, mm-hmm. but uh, and mostly for individuals under the age of 50. Right. Mm-hmm. And I also read that one quarter of the teenagers going online are averaging about 52 hours per week. Yeah, that sounds. Probably Would right. you say that's about right? Full time job for sure. Yeah. Um, and that would be combined with schoolwork as well as, you know, social media. They use it for everything, right? Yeah, but if you think about it and what you've just said, it just, it, this, this number speaks to exactly what you just said, where you're saying, look, I'm, I'm in the classroom and here's what we're finding. And 52 hours, so they're in school six. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, so, okay. So, you know. 30 hours a week of school and almost double that of uh, being online. And here's the other thing that I've noticed. And this is the thing that's quite shocking when you look at the numbers from a long time pre-internet versus uh, uh, now, present time. Yeah. Yeah. My students say to me all the time, we're so stressed. We have so much work. You give too much homework. There's too okay. much work. And I always say, really, what's really <laughs> interesting about that is that I give less than half what I used to give. Wow. Less than half the amount less of Less than half you uh, in terms of homework. And that's my academic class. That's French 12. Less than half. 
and the project should be in depth. And this was before the internet, when the kids didn't have access to the internet, they had to actually use books. And, and then they, they, oh, that can't be true. Well, I know it's true because when, and I remember my daughter doing this for a university uh, paper that she had to get done. She, she had six papers that she had to have done in eight days. And so she texted me and she said, mom, just so you know, I'm leaving my phone at home because Kathleen and I need to go to the library and get this paper done and we (laughs) cannot have our phones with us. And post, post conversation, she comes home, texts me and like, so how'd that go? Oh my gosh. I cannot believe how fast we got this paper done. Mom, out of three hours, normally it would take us six hours. She said, we couldn't believe how quickly we got our paper done. And I said, of course, because right. when distracted, as you quoted the stat, the stat I read was 23 minutes, that every time we are in full deep thought, and then we look to our phone to check a message or check a text or just see what my notification is on Instagram. Now it takes me another full 23 minutes is what the research that I read, but there's lots of different research. You look at that. Now, how do you get back to that depth of thought? Right. And what, what really that tells me then, because another text comes in, is that we never actually get to that full depth of thought. And no. That's no. what Sherry was talking about. And so that's what frightens me more than anything, is that we, one of the books that I read uh, called I Minds, fantastic book by Mari Swingle. Um, she is a neuropsychologist. So she has got over 15 years of data uh, showing children who suffered mostly from ADHD, most of her yep. patients. Yeah. Uh, coming in pre-internet and then post-internet. And so she ended up writing a book called iMinds, all about technology addiction and other types of addictions like porn addictions, et cetera. But yeah. uh, one of the, several of the chapters focused on tech addiction and what she saw from a clinical perspective and what her data proved. And it was shocking, but basically what she said, and I really highly recommend, again, if people are interested in this kind of information to read it for themselves, but sure. what she said basically is that what she believes is that we are robbing our future generations of our artists. Because when we wow. no have the wandering mind, and there's so much written on this now, Scientific American Mind just published something on it not too long ago. When our mind is not allowed to wander, Right. We never go to boredom. And no. from boredom is when we start to go, hmm. And, and, think. Then mind, and then our mind goes to deeper. And now Create. the neuroscience is starting to show that. This is the latest article I just read, was the actual neuroscience of what's happening in our brain synaptically wow. when our mind wanders. We go to the default mode network. It's powerful information for us to understand that this is science. This is not mm. people's opinions anymore. This is science. And so if we know that our beautiful little three-year-old child, say some of Mm. your listeners that are listening that are wondering, should they let their children play on an iPad? I would say, I would scream, no. Do not let your children play iPad games when they're three. When you go to a restaurant, do not put your smartphone in front of your child so you and your husband can talk. Right. You, they need to look around the restaurant and they need to draw, (laughs) they need to draw or play with a Lego. And if they want to get in and out of their seat 10 times and you have to get up 10 times, that's all part of development. That's all part of your childhood. It's almost like we're numbing them. You know, you see that, right? Like I'm sure Trish, you and all the listeners out there have been in a restaurant where you're sitting there and you're having a conversation with your person that you're with and you see that couple or those people who are just eating and on their phone. They're not even talking. 
Yeah, we see it all the time. And you know what I would I say to my students all the time, and I think this is really important. I always operate from a point of compassion. And mm. I say, there but for the grace of God go I. Because when I had my little children, the internet did not exist. Mine are 17, 19, and 21. And yep. they just missed the birth of the internet. Sure, they got sure. their phones when they were, you know, 12 and 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they still were affected by their phones. And I would say definitely. Uh, oh, yeah. One, if not two of my children are very connected to their phones. Yeah. Uh, and we cha- we're challenged all the time. And I have yeah. a lot of rules. Me as well. But what I say to them is it is very easy for us to criticize young parents uh, when we see them and give their kid an iPhone, give their kid an iPad so that they can sit down and have a coffee. And I always tell them the story of when I was in a Starbucks and my youngest child was only um, about, he was about 18 months and my other one was three and a bit. And in the days when in Starbucks, they had baskets full of toys. Yeah. And so I was sleep deprived and I three toddlers and I was going for coffee with a friend and I was desperately needing adult conversation. And my youngest got up on the back of a chair because he was bored of the toys in the basket, fell backwards, split his head open, gushing blood. And, right. and I always tell that story for a reason because it would have been so easy for me to yeah. say, okay, I'm sleep deprived. I need five minutes. I'm totally and play this little game on the iPad. And, and those are the challenges that we are faced with. And we have, and then just magnify those challenges when they're adolescents and they're screaming that they hate us because we take their phones away from them. Yeah. And that's really, really hard. And I've been there as I'm sure you have too. Oh, I have. And I've, I've just said, well, you know, I know you'll hate me for a small moment because yeah. I'm so awesome. And guess what? Like, you know, fine, but mm-hmm. it's, it's really strange to me. And yeah. You know, I, um, I, I, I even noticed after I started doing this research, I was like, you know, maybe I think I'm addicted too. like, you know, I mean, I work from this office and my work is on my phone. So I never have that time where I go to an office and I come back and I leave my work. It's always here. And this need for connection, this need for me to feel, oh, you know, I need to connect to that. You know, a, a good example of this is that I think, and maybe you can speak to this, can we talk about the feeling of that is being created now with people that they get everything immediately? And if you do not respond immediately, it's like, what? I text you. Yeah, I didn't answer your text. But why? Well, because, you know, I mean, whatever the reason, but do you see and can you speak to this instant gratification? I mean, if if our numbers are right, yeah. you know, is the typical response it says here is is typical response time is under three minutes. And I would say for adolescents, it's probably even less. Yeah. You know, um, so yes, I can absolutely speak to instant gratification. And again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's hardwired and hardwired, hardwired. Yeah. So the earlier that we expose our children to technology, the earlier they are absolutely 
compelled to check and to respond, to check and to respond because their brains are designed with, for, yep. for dopamine. That's we're all, yes. we're all designed for the hit of dopamine. It feels good. And, and what we need to understand is how addiction works. So addiction is that reward pathway anticipation in the brain, right? So okay. you anticipate the reward and okay. as soon as you check the text and you see, oh, it's just my mom, whatever it's gone. But now you're anticipating the next. So that's the hardwired. That's the neuroscience. So the dopamine comes when we're anticipating the reward, not when we get the reward, which is why when you're a shopaholic, when you're on Instagram and you're checking your favorite blog for your favorite, I don't know, clothing designer, sure. uh, you are desperate to continually check it because that's how you get the hit of dopamine that you get in anticipation of the next new thing. We are hardwired that way because it's primal, right? That's why we survive right. because okay. we're wired for novelty. That's how our brains are, are wired. So, so the computer and the smartphone have been designed, particularly Snapchat and, and Instagram are designed by neuroscientists from yeah. Harvard, from Princeton. Uh, they know what they're doing um, and they are designing this to absolutely compel us to want more and buy more and consume more. And that there's a greater conversation about consumerism, but it is absolutely connected to that. Tristan Harris is an amazing uh, uh, speaker out of Silicon Valley who's actually kind of was the whistleblower on all of this. And he yep. has a great TED Talk talking about how software designers absolutely need to take responsibility and start designing apps that help us like moment. I don't know if you're familiar with moment, but that's no. an app I recommend for your listeners. And what moment does is it tracks how much you use your cell phone and it, Oh, I'd like that. Yeah. So I actually recommend to my students to download it. And there's quite a few now available online in the app store. At first Apple was saying, no, nope, we're not going to do that. And then they got really exposed and made to look quite bad. 60 minutes did a piece on it as well. And yep. suddenly Apple is now allowing those on the app store. So there's lots of ways to help us. And, and that's hopefully we'll get to talk today about how, how to help because we, we know the problems are serious. Obviously. Well, we know the problems are serious and, 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 you know, and helping is so it's frightening, like, because what it does is it puts the onus back on communication and back on this need for it's that the person feels disconnected, even though they're not right. We're alone, we're alone together is what Sherry Turkle says. We're alone together. we're alone together. Yeah. And there's just so much written on that. Actually, that's the name of her other book alone together alone together. I'm writing all these down and, and then we'll that's, go over them. That's, very, that's, that's, you know, there's just so much written on this. I know that your listeners could for sure be inundated by yeah. the amount of information out there. I think the most important thing is what you're doing, which is having authentic conversations with parents and teachers. People yeah. say, here's what I've done. Here's what I'm trying yes. to do. It's not perfect. Uh, no. We still have problems. We still have challenges in my family uh, with my teens and their phones. Well, um, but I think the most important thing is that we're mindful and we're talking. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the thing is that, you know, for me to say we had this under control would be a lie. Of course. For me to say that I, that in the summer while I'm working, yeah. that my eight-year-old daughter isn't yeah. on we or yeah. on her iPad would not be truthful because frankly, I find it convenient 
And that, but, but then I think back to all my other babies and I go, wait a second. Like, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things that filter into that. But the, but the biggest thing for me, I think as parents, we need to shoulder the responsibility of, of saying this is convenient. And so we, we have to wear that, I believe. And but then again, you're not going to, you're not taking your kid's phone uh, before they go to school. Most of us have a purpose for that. We give our kids the phone because we want to know where they are, <laughs> right? Like it's just a other conversation actually, because parents actually fuel a lot of the problems as well. Well, we do. Our parents didn't have to know where we were. When we were at school, we were at school. And oh, my mom and dad expected us. And yeah. you know, and I think that's a good point, Trish. My parents expected me to be where I said I was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think though that too, like, I, I think it's really important to give the message that technology and smartphones can be wonderful things. Absolutely oh, it's great. Wonderful things. There's Excellent. lots and lots of pauses and it's not all or none. It's balance. Everything mm. is all about balance. Balance. Uh, in the classroom, I think that our days of understanding balance are numbered. Um, I've done quite a bit of research on it for our September uh, professional development where I, yes. I together a lesson with one of my other colleagues uh, with some really cool kind of little clips on, on, on YouTube where we found schools that have gone completely cellular free, no cell phones allowed in their school and what they've seen and the changes they've had. Then we've taught, and then there's another clip that I found online of a university professor who asks that her students only use the cell phones when she asks them to, and the laptops as well. She asks them to take notes with their hands. Wow. We're there's a lot of research now on that, that at the university level, and many of my students are coming back to tell me this, that you cannot absorb, and we know this, and I minds, she talks about it, our single, yeah. you don't learn the same way. There are different synaptic pathways when you write something versus when you type it into a computer. And Very what, true. So, so what we're seeing now is kids that are taking actual old school notes in university are absorbing it differently Pulling and more profoundly than if they were just typing. Uh, and plus, as we all know, if you have your Mac open in the classroom, you probably have two or three different tabs open. You do. You're not just focused on the professor's lecture. You're not. The lecture, you've got your Facebook or your Instagram open, you're, you're texting with your mom in the corner, you know, you're doing different things. And, and we can't do that. We just know that the brain can no longer do that. I mean, the mm. brain's never been able to do that, actually. Um, but people seem to think they can. And the reason they think they can is because they kind of pull it off. They mm. kind of pull off the beat yeah, yeah. and the relationship. But what happens, what we're seeing is the quality of all of these things is, is going downhill. It's declining the quality. And, and the I, quality of, um, and the quality of writing, like, uh, like what we talked about, but writing is so important. Like yeah. how to write a business email or a mm -hmm. business, you know, it's not like you are meaning mm -hmm. you are it's mm -hmm. like it's not it's y-o-u space a-r-e like this is what we're looking at and so yeah. how to greet and how to I mean I was really shocked at when I've ever edited people in my household's papers I'm like what where's the grammar Mm -hmm. what's going on and it's like this is shorthand but it's not shorthand it's it's something different. It's yeah. text speak. Yeah, that's right. It's a new language. Yeah. 
So, you know, we have to figure that out as a community, I think. And this is the challenge because when I was putting this lesson together with my colleague for uh, next year, we have a new timetable next year called Flex Time. And, and so there's going to be time in that first block where the kids actually have time to do important things that are not prescribed by the teacher. Ah. And, and so what we decided as a committee is that we we're going to come up with some really good lessons for the first week of flex time that teachers could choose to show their students and do with their students. All the kinds of lessons. One is the tech lesson that I'm talking to you about hmm. because my proposal to our staff was that we do not allow phones during flex time. Wow. That flex time is 40 minutes a day. And if kids don't have any homework to do in that 40 minutes, because it's not supposed to be prescribed learning from the teacher, then we should have board games in our classroom. We should have decks of cards in our classroom. This is a good time for teachers to get to know their students on a different level. Why don't you play a risk and keep it going? Put it to the side. Why don't you build a puzzle? Why don't you read a book? And teachers can have lots of books in their classrooms because kids don't pick up books anymore. Um, So these are all, I already do the book reading once a week in my French class. And I just, I I can't believe how many things there are that we can do. And instead, my fear is that what's going to happen is that some people, teachers included, will not want to have to fight with kids during those 40 minutes because the teachers will see, hey, I need time too to do my marking, to do my, so they go to do their work. And then in that 40 minutes, we lose the opportunity to connect with our students. And this is what I'm really pushing for. But of course, it has to happen on on people's own terms, right? But it also has to start happening in a home environment too. That's the best way to get reinforcement, I think, as a school and as a teacher is when the person that's in the home who has another level of relationship is 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 supporting from from the other side. One of the things that I, I wanted to talk about, I I, I recently read an article um, that suggest suggested that we are not addicted to the smartphone but what we are addicted to is social interaction of course it's always about and the need to socialize mm-hmm. and there seems to be this common thread that runs through media and 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 devices where you have the opportunity to connect to mm-hmm. anyone anywhere at any time mm-hmm. and you get the information that fuels this basic need that that has been since the foundation of human existence which is you know this connection yeah and so that that key that's the key to my addiction unit so we're not just talking smartphones we're talking any kind of addiction the opposite of addiction is connection my kids some of my students actually tease me that when they hear that line they think of me can i just so let's let's pause i think that is i have not heard that Yeah. And I want to say it to you again. The opposite of addiction is connection. Correct. So basically what, as long as it's connection with a real human being, obviously is what we're talking about. So basically take anything that we're addicted to, whether it be alcohol, marijuana, smartphones, it doesn't really matter what it is. Sure. We we are, we are hardwired for attachment as human beings, right? Yes. We are social beings. And when we talk about conformity and peer pressure, all of that social media plays into all of that, right? Right. So we are hardwired to belong and to attach. The only, the only human beings that are not wired that way are psychopaths, right? Because their brains actually do, are not wired the same way. Their right. brains just don't function the same way. 
different parts of the frontal lobe do not uh, wire the same way as ours do. So they don't actually look for connection. They don't need it. Right. Uh, the rest of us do. So that means all the rest of us need connection. So if a child, if a young child, particularly adolescents, when they're the most vulnerable, right. this is the hardest time of their lives. Oh. The majority of human beings, you ask anybody our age, they will tell you, I never would want to be a teenager again. Oh, Ever. My God. Whenever, whenever I tell people that I'm a high school teacher, they say, oh my goodness, isn't that hard? And I say, no, it's amazing. But the reason it's amazing is because my students know that I totally understand how hard it is for them to be a teenager. Yes, and I do. do not say, which a lot of adults do, you know, if you think your life is tough, just try having a mortgage, just try having bills, just try having people angry with you at work. I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't say that. Well, I mean, and adults do it all the time. I hear my students tell me this all the time that they go all through the this with their parents who don't understand the stress they have. No. And, and then social media makes it worse for them or they're numbing with alcohol, which yes. is, I think the stat I was just reading in the conformity article that I was reading uh, by Dumas, uh, 2012 research study that she did on identity uh, development, identi identity exploration, they call it, and identity commitment. So these are identity exploration and identity like, commitment. So this, these are the two things that young teens um, go through. Interesting. And what the, all the research shows us is if the higher amount of identity exploration and commitment that a young person, let's say from age 14 to 18, high school years, let's say grade nine, okay. grade eight, um, the higher that is, the lower correlation to substance abuse, to risk-taking behaviors, any kind of wow. risk-taking behaviors. So the, the research has been done over and over and over again since the 60s. Uh, but, but basically what we're saying is, if we teach our children uh, that to explore who they are and then mm -hmm. eventually start to commit to who they are, that will help them when it comes time for the difficult things in the teen world, which is conformity. You need to belong to the cool group. And if you don't, you're right. black, right? And you're bullied and all sorts of things. Right. And that is incredibly challenging for kids. But what we do know for sure is kids that have a sense of what are my values? What do I yeah. want for myself? What, where do I see myself in the future? Even if they don't have those answers, those questions are there. Are there. That exploration and then the commitment starts to happen around grade 11 or 12 but it yep. certainly doesn't, doesn't get fixed until no. much later like three four years later right around 22 23 years of age they start right. to really kind of come into their own and understand you know a little bit more of who they are and what they believe in you know mm. but the, the teen years as you know are so incredibly difficult and we need to address that we need to uh, as as adults we need to say to our teens I understand it hurts. And Absolutely. I, I say to my kids, high school is like the game of Survivor. Mm -hmm. It's like watching Survivor on TV, except my kids go every day to that. And yeah. I have always, I, had, I, I didn't enjoy my elementary years, my high school years. I didn't even enjoy, I didn't enjoy those for a variety of reasons. And it's just, you know, that I'm, I still unravel to this day because it was so formative in my life and so the formative. patterns that I created, just the fact that I didn't get good grades, that I was a C minus student and I felt stupid was enough to stop me from moving forward in my life until I was 
39 years old. I just, I just believed that I was not intelligent and it, it seeded this deep seed of unworthiness. It, it brought forward fear. I mean, it was like, so all of that happened. I know where that happened. And so when we're looking at our kids and we're saying, I look at my kids every day and I just go, Every morning you can ask my kids, I, I look at them and I give them the biggest kiss. And I say, I want to be the only person in your life that will greet you this way. I just missed you for that 12 hours that I was away from you while we were all sleeping. But I want you to know that you're going into the lion's den today and I'm here if you need it. And I think that is a really important message, especially as we move into this next phase of conversation around conformity and really this concept that I didn't really get until I was doing the research, which was, this definition started coming up. My kid is antisocial. My kid is antisocial. And what followed it was they're not antisocial at all. They're hyper social. And so you send your kid to school. The biggest thing that I'm thinking is, did you, who are you hanging out with? What happened? Like all these questions at the end of the day, did you feel okay? What happened when that happened? What about that? What about that? And well, you just worried, you're worried about them being lonely or antisocial, but really they have connection in the social media world that it creates this hyper socialization where, you know, there's, well, explain it to me. Well, what happens is that the, the problem, as you know, is that we only post our best bits. <laughs> so if you're right so, and, and they crack them and they filter their photos and and you know it's only in the last couple of years when that i've been taking photos with younger people and say oh can i sit up can i be on that side it's my better side i'm like what? yeah or you're like in the uh, in the big fat greek wedding too where they pull the face back right. when they take the photo yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because honestly i'm in my 50s I do not know if I have a better side. I have no idea if I have a better side. I don't do selfies. And if I do do selfies, I think I probably can count them on two hands, right? Right. I right. mean, just because it's silly and you're with your kids. But right. the, the reality is, is that they are so compelled to yeah. post those best bits. And then, yeah. as we all know, we all yeah. have days. We all have down days. We all have fights with our children. Uh, photos are the most classic. You know, you've got teenagers. I have three, uh, three teenagers. I want a whole family photo on mother's day. And you know, can, can we all do a smile together? Um, and maybe stand on the, Oh mom, I don't want to take a picture. I don't like my hair today or I don't like, all. and so you're just trying to get a photo and the end of fighting to get a family photo. And then you post this beautiful family photo on Facebook for the old people or an in Instagram if you're young. And what do you get? You get, Oh, I love my family so much. So now, meanwhile, another woman yep. had a mother's day that's been awful because her kids forgot about her, uh, checks my post out and goes, Oh my God, Trisha's life is so amazing. She's so lucky. She doesn't know behind the scenes that I was trying to get my kids to take the photo with me. It's all crafted. And I mean, even well, though I don't know what side I, I look good on, I certainly know that I want people to think I'm happy. And, and this so is really important, that, right? Because I was talking to somebody, I was doing an interview with a family whose, whose uh, child has uh, autism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I can't actually remember the, the, the family, but I, I remember the conversation, the tone. And, and they said something that was really important to me. They, they said, 
you know, our, my life, I had to stop looking at Facebook because my life was so terrible compared to I was holding on by the thinnest thread that when I would look at my friends, I would just, I would feel depressed. I would feel alone. It would isolate me further. And I'd say to myself, why aren't you seeing me? Why are you doing this? You're, you're all, you know, excited about everything, but you don't know me. You're not even, you've forgotten about me. Exactly. You know, you know that the research is out on Facebook. It's obviously new research. There's not enough of it that's been, uh, you know, replicated, but there is yeah. research out there that shows a high correlation of depression for the more you use Facebook. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Instagram research hasn't come out yet, but it, it will. And it will. It will. Both, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In the same numbers, I believe. Yeah. So so what's the solution? You know, right. what, what, is, what is the solution? And, and it always comes back to uh, a sense of mindfulness, a sense mm. of understanding connection, what real connection feels like and looks like. Because when our children, when our children get a sense of uh, identity exploration and they yes. start to figure out who they are, then yep. they so much care as much about what that person just posted on Instagram because they actually like to do I don't know, like Luke doing his thrift shopping and then sewing with his best buddy and making these cool pieces of clothing uh, just because it's fun and different. And he likes to look different. Uh, I like that. His older sister likes Aritzia and he's like, but I don't like that style. I like my right, own right. So there's that identity exploration, which I really encourage, right? Because then he doesn't care so much going into grade mm. 12. He doesn't really care too much about the kids that are all drinking and doing that kind of stuff which is right. pretty typical at his age now yeah so he's he's a pretty cool kid but he doesn't need to do those kinds of things because he's a, he has a sense of who he is and what he wants to do and I know that your kids are similar they are yeah. and and the question I have to you is can you say to the listener because I, I don't want to ever forget these most important things and just adding a why or how to in yeah. there yeah. so this this identity exploration what in your opinion would be the first step if somebody was just gonna take a step what what would you suggest as a a first step a first thought a first move towards you know this value and belief that you talk about where the identity exploration sort of begins to well, I think you, you and I both know that's a very, very heavy seated question because <laughs> identity exploration starts at a very young age. It does. It happens in the micro moments. It happens in yeah. little conversations that we have with our children. It yeah. happens in the good nights and in the good mornings. It happens when they are uh, breaking your rules and how you deal with it. Yeah. All of those things come back to, do you have a solid sense of yourself as a parent? What is important to mm. you? And therefore model that and live that because we can talk all we want, want as parents and as teachers and and the same goes for me as a teacher. If I stand in front of all of my students and tell them, you know, this is what I think is important, you guys, but they know that I'm not living my life that way. 
They're not listening to me for five seconds, but I continually make myself vulnerable in front of my students. I tell them mistakes that I've made about what I learned from those mistakes, about how I'm growing. We talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation in my classes, and I lead my students through some meditations every semester. And I tell them, I'm very new at this. I've only been doing it for a year and a half. I'm very new at it. And yet my whole life, I said, "Hmm, I'd like to learn how to meditate, maybe someday. Finally, I did it. And I tell them. It, yeah. there, there is no right or wrong to meditation. There is no right or wrong to mindfulness. It is just about being present. It doesn't mean you have to close your eyes and get all Zen and mm, you don't have yeah. to do any of that. All you have to do is be, try to bring yourself to the present moment when there are things going on with your team, like where they are tonight, why aren't they home on time for curfew? Where so would they? you say, would you say to the young teenager, young adult, the first step towards this, this path before you commit really to your identity is to move into a place of mindfulness, awareness of your body, move into an awareness of what you're thinking, how you're feeling. And And we're encouraging, you and I are having this conversation because the exhortation is read a book, begin to move and understand that technology is not, is an important gift. We, we get that, but there, we must begin to pull ourselves away a little bit because there's... You know, reading a book is a big step for a lot of kids. Sadly. It is it's a big step. Huge. So how about uh, when you're reading whatever your favorite blog is, ask important questions of those. Oh, you even know, better. Scrap I, what I said, everyone. Scrap, scrap what I said. Go with Trish. No, I, I think that that's totally legit reading a book, but I think that those are big steps. I see it. It's hard for me to get students to read books. It's hard for me to get my own children to read books. I know how hard that is. And I just went to the library today. Like I, I love books. Right? Okay, but I, Trish, this is really important. What we're saying here, what you just said to me yeah. is huge. It yeah. didn't even dawn on me. Okay. So small steps, critical thinking, ask who wrote this? So this is what I teach in my course all the time. Like, so you're reading something online. Um, yeah. If I can see the bio of that person, what, where are they coming from? Like, what's their background? And I don't necessarily mean you guys, do they have a PhD? That's wonderful if they have a PhD, but what is their story? What is their story? What do they bring okay. to the table? Okay. Because for example, one of my favorite uh, authors at the moment, Glennon Doyle Melton, who I told you wrote Love Warrior. Um, yes. She does not have a PhD. And yet she has one of the most watched TED Talks right. of all time, besides Brene Brown and Sir Ken yeah. Robinson, both of which I highly recommend. Um, and and you, you listen to her words and where does her experience come from? It comes from a very difficult childhood where she built up amazing resilience. And mm-hmm. with that resilience, she's, the way she developed her resilience is by stepping back and looking at her life and questioning, questioning, all the time questioning. Yeah. And that is what I endeavor to do. I don't give my students the answers. There are no right answers in my psychology no. class. One of the reasons why they say the class is hard, because I require them to critically think and I require them to ask themselves, mm. what am I interested in? What do I want to know about? Do I, so when they have to add their main assignment, one of the main assignments is a profound question. So what is jealousy? Why are people jealous? What, are girls more jealous than boys? At what age do we get like this? What is it that propels us to it? And all these micro questions that come from it. And they say to me, 
that was really cool. Thanks for asking me to do that. You call it a profound question. Yeah. You're, well, Ireland did a couple of them for me. She sure did. And, and when you do an, a profound question, what it gets you to do is to start thinking about the things that you're curious about. Right? Sure. That curiosity is what we're trying to nurture in kids because when you're curious, then you can think outside the little social media bubble that you've right. been sucked into, that vortex you've been sucked into, like all kids get sucked into. Yes. Most get sucked into because then you start saying, oh, wow, this really is just a bubble, isn't it? And when I look outside of this bubble, there's so many other bigger questions and more interesting things. It's why I bring people in my classroom to tell their stories all the time. Just like you're doing on your podcast, I do in my yeah. classroom. I want right. people to come in and tell their story. Because yes. then they go, oh, that's what fourth year university looks like. Because it forces a, a, a moving outside of yourself. Exactly. It forces you to, to move away from here. And you're looking out and you're going, okay, now that person, I, they, th- th- I just watched them or I heard their, them talk. They have an experience they're sharing. So now it becomes this other level for people yeah that's where the exploration happens okay and for your listeners particularly parents it's one of the 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 keys i believe to good parenting is then when they become your children become adolescents to encourage encourage the friends that you have in your life who Mm. are similarly minded who have similar values to you to please parent my child i'm happy to parent yours it takes a community to parent children. And, and I try to do that for my students. I try to be another parent when they tell me how much they don't like their mom at the moment. I remind yep. them regularly that my children didn't like me either. Uh, and then they laugh. No, no. And I'm like, of course, because I'm their mom. And, and so I always push them to think outside of their little bubble. And I think yep. that when parents can do that, when parents can say, hey, mm. I need help. Can you help me? Because Lori, I don't know how to do this. My yes. kid's addicted to her phone. Can you help me? We don't do that enough. And we don't, don't. go online, but we're afraid to tell our friends that things are difficult. We're, we're afraid to tell the people that we love the most that we need help. And, and well, because there's a, because if you're following, if you're following Brene Brown, yeah. you're knowing there's this daring greatly. And it's about this aspect of shame that we all feel. But this translates because then you move into, we're still talking about this um, hyperconnectivity. We're still talking about this. We're we're moving into this other aspect where there's shame. And you're constantly, hyperconnectivity, hypersocial is when you're constantly checking. Mm-hmm. what your friends are up to right. on social media every right. few minutes every right. second Constant. this is where the, the the addiction comes from this is kind of the birthplace where you need to watch and monitor others so yeah. this privacy is you're not really and you're only showing you're only showing things that you really want people to see. I mean, when you look at people's profiles, you always see their best self, right? It's not like, you know, no makeup, you know, it's like, ha, ah, it's that, you know? It, Absolutely. It's and, very and interesting. Remember when uh, the, uh, was it Amanda? What was her name, Amanda? Yes. Oh, um, a brain fart. 
Uh, Amanda Todd. Thank you. Thank Amanda. you, Rick, in the background there. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Amanda Todd uh, story came out. And I remember the Absolutely. number one question. This was early, early year on tech addiction. People didn't really understand. Weren't even having this conversation back in that, that those days. No, um, we weren't. Why would she keep going back? People kept saying, why does she keep going back? And here's the thing, because you keep going back because you yeah. think maybe this time somebody will like me. Maybe this time somebody will say to me, you matter, Amanda. Don't listen to the, those other people, but nobody did. And, and that is, of course, as we all know, cyberbullying happens because it's so much easier to say things behind a screen than face to face. I know there was. Well, and yeah. and this is the downside, right? We yeah. talked about, you know, there's this, you know, there's always this, there's a dark side of of this connection. Mm -hmm. And the dark side is there's an inappropriate uh, online content. I mean, you, you, you know, we don't need to get into that, but what is more in my mind is this, the bullying, the threatening, the sextortion, which is, you know, nude photos or whatever that is. It's, it's, I'm dating you. So could you show me your tatas? It's yeah. like, what? Like, what are we, what? I mean, yeah. when I was dating, it was like, yeah, you know what? You you there's none of that. It's like right. there's a level at a sense of self and you were learning about your sense of self through your family and yeah. your small community. But yeah. now what our children are exposed to is this massive online community and lots yes. of people are doing it. So is it that big of a deal? Hmm, right? And so there's no kind of sense of value. There's no sense of this is right. This is morally right. And yeah. this is not morally right. Right. And, and that gut reaction that we get when we know something's morally wrong, our kids are learning to not listen to that. And we need to teach our children to listen to their gut because, and I say that to my students all the time, you need to, fear is a gift. Fear is a gift. It is a gift. It, it's primal. It's why we survived as a species. There's lots written on it, Darwin being the first. And that fear will protect you. But absolutely, particularly young girls are taught to be nice. Be yes. Sweet, be kind. And so we quell our fear yeah. and we push it down. And yes. this just hashtag me too movement is just so amazing for me. It's, it's um, oh. because that because we're Absolutely. we're saying to girls through social media through a wonderful medium that can be wonderful as well as negative through this yes. wonderful medium that our kids are learning that hey hashtag me too right all these women have been you know hurt by other people and they are victims and they're saying no more i'm not taking this anymore and our girls this is a positive can see that and say hmm i see so I don't have to do this. But those conversations have to take place in real time. They can't they just happen online. And this is the problem is that a lot of parents will tell you, well, my kids want to hear me tell them. My kids, my kids don't want to hear me nag at them. All they ever do is talk all day long. And then if I try to say those things to my own children, they'll roll their eyes at me. They'll right. Whatever. And yeah, all mom. Teenager. But I think the key is you still say them. You still say, still it. Whether, say it, whether they're rolling their eyes at you or whether you don't think they're listening, they are listening and they are watching. Well, and I think this is really important. I, because, you know, I'm, I, 
I was talking to a family a while ago who who had an issue with this kind of this extortion issue. And, you know, it just scratched the surface for me because this individual literally, you know, it was it was this group. And the powerful thing for me, I asked, I said, what was the first thing you did? They responded. I shut down social media Mm -hmm. and then I realized who my real friends were. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, I had 60, 70 kids that made me feel valuable. You know, who doesn't feel valuable when you've got 5,000 hits or 5,000 likes or, Ooh, I'm, you know, I'm amazing. But it's not, it's not real. It's when the dust settles and there's one friend. That's right. And then that's, and then that's depression, right? And it's like, okay, now I'm depressed because I only really have one friend. And not only are you dealing with depression, but with cyberbullying and the threatening, it moves into this group dynamic that is so, groups can be powerful, but it is also can be very dangerous. Of course. I mean, that's, that there's lots written on that in social psychology. I mean, you could go on, for a long time talking about group sync and group conformity and, and the whole, the social pressure and social norms and what's okay and what isn't okay. But at the end of the day, we have to look at the child themselves. And what I think we've lost in our own homes, Lori, and it's why the kids want so badly in my class to talk all the time. Wow. They just, just let's just talk. Let's just talk. Yeah. Man. Let's talk. Is because people are not talking anymore. They're not having the conversations that you and I are having. No, they're not talking about these things. And so, for example, let's go back to your example of I only have one friend. Well, I say that regularly to my students. You only need one friend. Only one. You only need one friend. You need one trusted adult in your life. One friend. Don't let anybody else tell you anything differently. You just need one good friend who gets you, who will be there for you. And what is a friend, by the way? A friend is someone who makes you feel good about who you are. Absolutely. That's it. They make you feel good about who you are. And That's right. they can do that. If a friend can make you feel good about who you are and you do the same for your friend, there's a friendship. But if you're yeah. constantly questioning who you are and what you wear and how you look and how you speak, because this person is questioning you, that's not a friend. And no. they struggle with knowing what that looks like because yes. we don't even talk about it anymore. And because somebody has 2000 friends on Instagram, we think that, that means they're super popular people. No, that is not, that's right. That's not real friendship. So whether or not they roll their eyes at you or not as a parent, talk about your own friendships, talk about your struggles with your yes. friends. Talk about how your friendships have changed and what's yes. important to you. And, and uh, again, they will probably roll their eyes at you, but they are still listening. They mm. hear it. And, and I'm telling you, I know this from my own personal experience as a parent and also in the classroom. And I mm. think that that's super powerful information. It is the it micro is. moments that create relationships with our children. And we need to focus on that. There's no big fix. There's not one, you know, one fit, size fits all. All you need to do is be real about who you are with your children. Yeah. Be real about your love. When you mess up, apologize. It's all yeah. in kindergarten. But talk to your children, even if they don't want to talk to you. They don't can, have to talk. Can we talk about, well, what you say is true. And I, and I, and I, 
like I, I think the most powerful thing that I'm hearing from you and you've been repeating it over and over again is micro moments. And I, and I, I, I parent that way. Um, I interact with myself in micro moments. It's always like, well, why did I do that? Why am I doing this? But can we talk about conformity? Like about what, what are you thinking what do you see happening here? Because. Yeah. I mean, we know that there's so, like I was quoting the research earlier, that we yeah. know there's so much research on conformity. Yeah. We know that it starts typically, it used to start later. Now it's starting yeah. earlier. So right. around, you know, grade six, even grade five, unfortunately. Right. See, young children starting to think, realize, hmm, I don't fit. I feel like I don't, fit in. In. I don't really fit in. And yeah. so they will do different things to try to fit in. They'll, they may numb themselves through whatever it may be, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately for a lot of our girls, as they get to grade nine, grade eight, and grade nine, we start to see eating disorders, yeah. those kinds of, of abilities to try to numb themselves. Why? Because they are in control of that, right? right? They need some kind of control over their lives. And they, they feel completely out of control when it comes to social media. So it is an incredibly difficult landscape to, to navigate. Wow. And what I believe is that when you give kids the information about what we're yep. talking about here, so social psychology, basically, conformity, sure. social norms, all of those different things, when you tell them about it and then you say, guess what? Here's the research. Here's what it shows. Or just even give an example of what happened to you as a kid. But right. then tell them that this is what happens all the time. This is what the yeah. bystander effect is. This is what this is. Then even if they don't go, wow, that's mm. interesting. They're still thinking, oh, so when I do that. Oh. Right. And so when we talk about it in the right. class, 11 and 12, my students will tell me, you know, by grade 11 and 12, madame, we're not really conforming as much anymore. They're still conforming. You and I still conform. We all conform. I mean, absolutely. I, I wouldn't be buying my clothes at Aritzia if I didn't conform. Right? Me either. Or my right. makeup at Sephora. Exactly. So we all conform. It, it doesn't mean you're weak. But what it does mean is that you're just human. It's part of being human conforming. Hmm. The point yes. is, is that we have to teach our children to not lose their selves within that conformity. <sighs> and so that's where the idea. That's a really good point. Yeah, any exploration and then commitment comes in. So by about grade 11 and 12, like I was saying to you, and even up until, you know, two, three years post-secondary, um, they start to kind of get a sense of, hmm, who am I? What do I want to do with my life? What am I passionate about? What do I love to do? What can okay. I do to make a difference in the world? Those questions mm. start to happen with identity commitment. But sure. identity exploration is that kind of painful age between grades five, six, and about grade 10. Yeah, Time. And this is, you know, where we have, you know, just recently a tragedy, of course, in our yes. neighborhood that was so uh, tragic <sighs> that we see this incredible push to drink and to to do risky behaviors. And it's just heartbreaking because it is, they all go through it. Everybody goes through it. But it's about yeah. whether or not you know, whether or not that alcohol is just a little bit too heavy or the drugs were just a little bit too much and they didn't expect that they were going to take what they took or, yeah. you know, were they pressured to taking it to all of those things. And we know that research shows. That the well, and I think, I think, you know, I mean, and I heard um, months and months ago, you know, 
and this isn't just exclusive in our community. This is in exclusive in every community. I would imagine, you know, there's kids that start to, they do the, they start to drink and then they drink and they, and they, this particular person's getting, you know, all the shots and whatever, and then they go unconscious. And it's like, there's something there that, you know, whether they, what happens to the group and why is there not one person that just sort of goes, this isn't right. You know, I was talking to my kids about it because of, 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 of different tragedies and and different things that we've been hearing, you know, around the world and, and just, you know, just looking at this research and I've been saying to my kids, okay, so you have a phone and it's so easy just to, sort of pretend you're taking a call from somebody and phone 911, <laughs> you know, or what stopped Trish? Do you know what's stopping this? Well, that's what I'm saying that that's exactly what we're talking about. It, their, their brains are not fully developed, right? They're not able to think rationally. That's where the frontal, the prefrontal cortex right. is the, 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 the bed of rational thought. So if you're 14 years old, and yeah. you see this risk-taking behavior going on. Now sure. let's add alcohol to the mix. Right. You have literally lost your ability. You are offline. Yeah. You are not thinking, hmm, I'll no. just pretend to call 911. You're not thinking that way. Because no. your brain is not wired to do that. And not at all. We need to understand there's no rational thinking there, right? Okay. Um, so we have to understand, and conformity is powerful. Remember, again, it's primal. We yeah. are designed to live in groups. We are de- designed to yep. attach. Yep, and we're people. going in the same direction. Right, churches, right. everything. Absolutely. We have well, our little groups, right? Yeah, animals do it, so, you know. Animals do it, and of course, for human beings, typically it's about, like with monkeys, they say the group is about 50. And once monkeys expand past 50, then they break into two different tribes or two different groups. Human beings, they say, is about 250. It's a great uh, YouTube video you can put on your links called The Innovation of Loneliness. Uh, Just a short uh, video that I show my students to help them to understand, you know, what you know, what's the science behind conformity and why we need to belong so much. And so we go, we are, social media is a perfect vehicle yeah. to, uh, to speak to that primal need to belong. It's primal. Well, and this is the thing. It moves us down. What you're saying then drops us down another level into mental health, hmm. into the pressure on it, on you mentally to be perfect, to always be on, to, you know, show that your life is perfect and, and heaven forbid it, it, it look weird. You know, it's like really weird. I, I have, I, you're, it's not in the frame right now, but I have these, um, three little um, uh, ceramic cats that were my grandmother's. Mm-hmm. And somebody said to me, why would, th- like, uh, how ugly is that? And I was like, well, um, I don't give a crap, number one. And number two, that was my grandma's. Like, how lovely. It's yeah. a piece of my childhood. These were something that I adored. And, and yet you're like, and, but, but it should, it's not current. And I was like, it isn't. Like, <laughs> and so your point is, is that even at our age, people are still doing it, right? It's not still doing it. 
right it's it never goes away because it's part of being human but the point is is in adolescence it's at its most challenging because one we force them into a group dynamic that they have no control of they do not have control of who walks the hallways no okay they don't have control of who's in their class they have no no control whatsoever they don't even have any control about how the teacher speaks to them they have right so you have this incredibly difficult environment and unless you have a classroom where like the kids would say to me all the time when I walk into your classroom I just feel like it's a safe haven where I can just breathe right yeah that is the point is that That education and our homes so our classrooms and our homes should ideally 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 be places where kids can feel safe because the rest of the world isn't very safe right and that is reality so we have and some kids are right and some kids are coming to your class and their home is the least safe place and they're enjoying your class and the safety that that you bring that's the power of the teacher that's Mm -hmm. the community that you were talking about earlier where you know you might be the friend's you might be the mother to the friend, but, but you can still have this impact in anyone's life in, in any way. As long as we're authentic and we're not yeah. trying to pretend that no. we have all the answers. We no. don't have answers. No. Whether we're, you know, 30 year uh, veteran teachers or a brand new teacher, we don't have all the answers. No. All we can do is listen to each yeah. other whether it be adult to adult, adult to child, just listen to each other, try to hear each other and ask questions. Ask them, what's going on for you? What happened to you? How are you feeling? You know, and when they yeah. know they're in a safe place and you can support them with that, then there's so much more that can come from that. Absolutely. And, and on this mental wellness and the pressure, mm-hmm. I, I was reading that, the pressure to be on 24 seven, how do you interact with that in the classroom setting? Because there's a lot of anxiety about that. And, and I was talking to somebody, actually a teenager a while ago, and, and they were saying that there's text messages being sent in the night and the pressure to respond to those messages because you might miss something is really huge. Do you agree with that or, or have you noticed that? It's real. And I, when I ask my, I know it's real. And when I ask my students how they respond to it by about grade 11 and 12, particularly the kids that are taking my classes, because they're actually interested in the why and how of human behavior, they're starting to realize to put it away. Right. And okay. so, like for me, I think I shared with you before with my kids, as soon as they got their phones, we had a, a really clear rule as of 10 o'clock on a school night, the phone came into a, a closet and everybody's phones are put away. On weekends, they get to decide. And in the summertime, they get to decide. And here's the thing. Why? Why would I do that? Now I'm going to let them become addicted over the summer or now they're going to become right. addicted on the weekends. And the point is, is that we have to allow kids to have a little bit of control so they can learn okay. self-regulation. So then when something happens, like they're late for their appointment because they slept in on that weekend, then you can say, hmm, like, yeah. did, you, did you put that phone away on time this weekend? Yeah. But during the week, we need to be helping them with that because they can't do it. It is an addiction. It is not about willpower. Uh, people need to understand that tech addiction is a real thing. The Chinese yeah. have done an immense amount of research. If people are interested, they should watch Web Junkies um, on Netflix. It's a very uh, frightening documentary on, on China's response to how to deal with technology addiction, which is 
in my humble opinion, not very effective, um, mm. where they put them in these military style camps to try to, you know, force the internet out of them, which of course we know is the opposite. Okay. Because addiction is the opposite of connection. So if you take your child right. away from in a military style camp, they're not connecting with the very people they need to, which is their family. Absolutely. There needs to be a reason why you want to connect. You need to make dinner time important. You need to make it important to go and watch your children play sports. You need to encourage your children to do other activities, whether it's sports mm. or art or music or whatever. We need to be doing that throughout their lives and yeah. we need to find balance in our lives and and of course model it for ourselves being that mind, mindful talking to them about your own journey about your own tech addiction and what you're working on and what you saw happen with your own behavior because as soon as kids hear us cough like that they go oh they get me ah. well if we're asking our kids to put their phones away we then we need to be yeah we need to be mindful we need to be mindful and we need to we need to focus on those micro moments yeah you know, Trish, this has been an, an, a fantastic conversation. And I am like, I'm so excited that we were able to talk because I want you know, I've wanted to talk to you for quite some time. It's been so, such a pleasure for me. And I, I do agree with you. I think that they're important conversations. We have a lot more to talk about. We a do. lot, A lot more about technology. We don't really know where we're going, to be honest. No. Um, it's only going to get more powerful, the technology that's in our yep. hands. Uh, right now and and the point is is that we just need to stay informed as yes parents. we need to stay informed and we need to be strong knowledge is power we need to be strong together we need to ask for help when we're struggling and we need to not be afraid of being a parent rather than a friend to our child absolutely uh, yeah like we can be friends later when they're grown-ups we can be friends later. You know what? I'll be friends with you later. Right now? Yeah. Right Here's now, how it's going to roll. Oh, you don't like me? When I took my daughter's phone away from her for three months in grade 11, she did not like me. No. Nope. And uh, she still jokes about that at 21 years of age. Um, but she definitely did not like me. And that's okay because uh, she remembers that lesson well. And my daughter didn't like me when I said she was six years old and she wanted something in the store. And I was way out in North Vancouver and I lived in White Rock and she said, can I have these? And they were alphabet, those alphabet letters that go on the fridge. Yeah. And I said, you already have a set. And you, you don't, but mine aren't sparkly like this. I want these. <laughs> I said, no, you're, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not getting them for you. And she turned to me and she said, you don't know how to love me. Mm. And I said, oh, I sure do. Get your carcass in the car. And it was a long drive home. My mom didn't even talk to me. She knew I was so upset. I pulled into the yard. I said, wait here. And my mom watched the kids. And I went up to her room and I took two huge bins and I put all her items in those bins. And I said, and I brought her into her room and I said, this is what love looks like because you have so much and this was something that you were willing to you thought that this would make you happy those little alphabet letters and it doesn't you're gonna have to earn it back ireland still talks about that day does uh, i a, a friend of mine who's a um, an addictions counselor in white rock always says this line and it's just so powerful. I don't know if he got it from Gabor Mate. I feel like it's a Gabor Mate line. 
Mm. Um, but it's addiction is an external reach for internal well-being. Oh, wow. That's really, really powerful. I'm pretty sure. It's wow. Right. So think external about external reach, for external reach for internal, internal well-being. well-being. So whenever we have to go outside of ourselves to feel yes, matter if it's that next pair of shoes or if it's the furniture or the painting, it doesn't really matter what it is. When we need to do that, then we have to question, hmm, do is, it, is that going to make me feel better about who I am? Yes. Because, but, and that's the core of what we're talking about, Trish, because the reality is when we're talking about social media and it's, we are actually going outside of ourselves to get everything we need and we're not going internally. And, and this is the power of this. That's the anxiety. That's the depression because you don't feel connected to the world because you're always reaching outside of yourself for that, which it needs to come from inside. And, because and talking, you are right. Talking and talking about, about Amanda Todd for a moment, Yeah, you know, she was reaching out. She wanted to be seen. Of course. And who doesn't want to be seen? Everybody. And, but when the reality struck that, you know, I don't have any friends anyway. And it began to crumble. You know, that's where you move into these very painful aspects of, of the dark side of this need for connection. Well, and look at, look at the popularity of the television series, 13 Reasons Why. Oh, why do children want to watch that? Think about it. Because they see it and they see their lives. They see the challenges that yeah. they face. And, yeah. and so, you know, when, when you look at a show like that, it yeah. frightens most of us as adults. It absolutely frightens us. Yeah. But they are talking about very difficult subjects. And yeah. we need to be honest with our children because anything they talk about in 13 Reasons Why, they can find on the internet in five minutes. I know. So, but right. let's not talk about suicide. Because then you might, you know, provoke somebody to have uh, suicide ideations. Well, we know that's garbage. I bring suicide uh, counselors into my classroom to talk about suicide, to give the kids all of the information they could possibly need, and then the help if they think somebody is going to hurt themselves. And right. how? And those kinds of things are difficult conversations, right? And if we don't have those conversations, all the difficult conversations, then our kids are going to continue to have more anxiety and more depression. Right. We need to have those hard conversations and we need to continually tell our children that we love them, that we are here for them and that, yes, we're flawed and we're making mistakes all the time. But we're going to do the best that we can to show you that you are loved unconditionally, even when you're nasty to me, which, of course, Mm. happens. Right. Yes. Now, how and, and, and maybe we can wrap up with this, but what. So somebody is listening who is saying, yeah, you know what I I need, I I am struggling with this addiction. I I want to, I want to branch out a little bit more. What can they do? What do you do? How how do we move? As an adolescent or as an adult? Adolescent. Well, for adolescents, one of the things you actually mentioned, which was uh, to delete the social media apps helps a lot. Mm. Uh, and a lot of my students have told me that they've done that um, simply because they can still get to their social media application by going through Safari or Google, sure, but it makes sure. it that much harder. And when okay. it's a little bit more work, 
then they aren't as compelled to click on it when they have two seconds. Mm. So it's just a simple little thing like that. Consider downloading moment to let you let you have an idea of how many hours you actually spend on your phone and how many times you check it. And it wow. touch the home button. It, t- it checks just to see your checking behavior. Because so Trish, that you say that really, it really gets me because uh, I didn't read one of these little lovely facts, but it said not only does a quarter of the teenagers, you know, on 52 hours a week, but picked up their device nearly 1500 times per week for close to three hours a day. Yeah. It's in their hands all the time. Right. They don't let go of it. Right. You see, no, 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 no. You take a phone away. It's like, that's similar to, it's similar to OCD behaviors, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, of compulsive behaviors, which of course it isn't OCD, but it is definitely what we see in the brain, at least what the research says we see in the brain, is it's very closely correlated with what we see in addiction, right? Right. And gambling addiction, porn addiction, doesn't really matter what, it's that immediate uh, hit of dopamine to the reward pathway. And so we mm. think, hmm, maybe this text, maybe this. And so if they can do that, I understand that the latest, a software update for iPhone. I just got it from my, um, I just got an email today. Um, I belong to an online community of a director who um, she wrote the, uh, and produced and directed the film Screenagers. Have you heard of the film Screenagers? You can only see it. You can only see it by going to, um, uh, you can only see it by going to an actual screening of it. Okay. Uh, but I highly recommend it. And right now she's got t- the 10 best documentaries to watch as a family. I will send it to you so that you can put it on Please. your website. Um, but films to watch with children and teens. And one's called Delt. Another one is Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, touch the Sound. Some very I haven't seen most of these. Um, so I look forward to looking at them and seeing what she's recommending. But basically the director of this film, Screenagers, uh, is talking about exactly what we're talking about, talking to all the experts um, on what can we do differently? How can we help our children? Uh, how yeah. can we balance? And, you know, it, it is, is going to be, it's going to continue to evolve this story because... Yes. Uh, the biggest challenge being, of course, as you and I know, is that artificial intelligence is changing at such a rapid uh, growth um, that now my latest Scientific American Mind uh, that just came in my inbox that I haven't had a chance to read yet is um, how artificial intelligence is starting to show emotion now. They're starting to figure that out because, of course, that's what that's what delineates, right? Human beings. That's right. Absolutely. Artificial intelligence is that it doesn't know how to appreciate a piece of art. Right. right? Um, but now we're talking, you know, mm. that this is, this could very possibly be by 2050, um, the ability of a computer to do that. To Unreal. You and feel and read your um, emotion by looking at your face right now and be able to say, mm, you touched your fingers to your mouth. Well, that means, and, and unfortunately, as you and I both know, a lot of our children don't know how to read anything. They don't know how to read our facial gestures anymore no. because they're no. not, they're not having conversations. So they're not having conversations. And so I think that we are beginning to create the conversation yeah, because exactly. like you're suggesting, we're going to need to have harder conversations than this 
in, in the years to come. And so we need to start getting used to these conversations. And this is why this show is so important to me because I don't care about being in a studio. And, um, you know, like the sun is, is, is dropping and it's weird lighting. I deal with it. It's like, this is a conversation that we have to have and we have to have it at nine o'clock at night in the summer because this is important and you're in your home. I'm in my home and everyone else viewing and listening is in their homes and we need to create this this kind of conversation. And so what you're saying is micro moments matter. You're saying you're drawing an attention to um, where when a kid is or not a kid, but the age of identity, Mm -hmm. right? You said identity exploration and identity commitment and where technology is coming in right at those peak moments and it's creating an imbalance or a a skewed sense of what that identity ability they don't have the ability to process that yet their brains are not fully developed right to help them with that we didn't even get to talking about the binge drinking culture that is completely different than when we were in university and our you're right and which is why we you have to come back on the show there, there's a lot, there's a phenomenal article in the Atlantic about binge drinking culture in college. Campus. Oh, we got to talk about this. Yeah. It's powerful stuff because it's powerful. That's what we're seeing like UBC right now. Um, I went to UBC and at UBC, uh, they have full-time security uh, guards on uh, 24 seven now, yeah. not just because of how dangerous it is for young women on campus. Uh, one in five women are, um, uh, have a very, very great possibility of, of being raped on campus. Um, one in five before they graduate. One in five. One in five. And so that's that. But then there's the binge drinking culture that uh, corresponds. And, when, and the article talks a lot about why is that? And one of the big things, which is, again, something we didn't touch on, is the difference between the parenting of that day and our day today. And that the, the hover parenting, the helicopter. That's right. Snowplow parenting. There's lots of different terms, yeah, degrees of of protection, and and this inability of of parents to allow their children to fail, to see failure as a good thing, and therefore to allow them to make mistakes, so that by the time they are finally free of you, which is in university, uh, that then they are making calculated risk cost risk benefit ratio. They're looking at it and saying, hmm, is it worth it to do that? I don't mm. know. That. You're always going to have the kid that's going to binge to blackout when we were kids. But sure. now it's more the norm than it, than it is than it was when we were kids. And what the experts are starting to guess, and of course they're not sure, they can't prove right. it, but they're starting to see that there has a lot to do with the way these kids have been parented. That their parents were, were the same parents that were giving their kids shots in the rec room downstairs when they were in grade 11 so that they're safe. At least they're safe then. I know my children are safe. But the problem with that flawed thinking is that when we do that, when we give our children alcohol because we think they're going to get it anyway, Trish. Right. What are you, just some naive parent? No, I'm not. What I am is a parent who knows that developmentally, our children need to take risks to find out what's worth it and what isn't worth it. If I do this, will I lose my parents' respect and trust? And that needs to matter to them. That's and right. so if you're the parent giving them the vodka and then you say, well, they're safe that way because I know how much I gave them. Who are you kidding? 
that you don't think they can get more vodka. Like they can get as much as they want. So you gave them some and you literally said it's okay to break the law. Well, and not only you gave them something, Trish, but now you're responsible. Oh yeah. And and has that ever entered up uh, the the person who's doing the the boot, the person that's doing it? Is it ever entered their mind that if somebody gets injured or somebody gets set up for an addiction and you're the one that's been supplying? Of course. That that's actually on you. <laughs> but even if people don't go that far, even most most people, sadly, only really think about their own children, right? They really do. And I say that sadly because as an educator who loves my job, I look at all of my students as my children. So I treat my students the way I treat my own children. I love them. I care about them deeply and they know yep. that. So I would never I'll do that. I wouldn't, I don't think for a second that I would want to provide alcohol and then say, you can stay safely in the basement suite and no driving. I'll take everybody's keys. Well, all I've done is tell you that it's okay to break the law and that I'm going to help you do it. And that is a twisted sense of, of growth because I've taught my children that I'm their friend and I will take all the risk for them. And that's dangerous. They need And you know. know what else is dangerous, Trish? And I and I think that this conversation that we're having is is powerful. And of course, we're gonna have you back on to 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 have that conversation. But what you just said there, you know, let's bring it back to the original conversation where So we are empowering our kids to, if we're not monitoring, if we're not taking care of the social media aspect, if we're not taking care of the hours that they're connected, then this text, this sextortion, this cyberbullying, the threats, the depression, we have the gen, what you're basically saying is wake up we must literally disempowering better we need to be better and and we need to be better i need to be better you need to be better and you and i both know that and i think most parents know that too but we we also need to ask our kids to be better and and when we ask them to be better we need to show them and so some of the points that you've made that i think are so important are we must start communicating again that's how we can be better we can we must start to share our life yeah with the happy moments and the tough moments too the sad ones need to reach to our friends to help us parent yes to our teachers we need to be honest with our teachers i would tell you one of the most common complaints of teachers is i didn't know that that kid lost his mother i didn't know that that kid i didn't know that that kid was struggling with clinical anxiety why because everybody hides it why because of stigma but if you are a parent of a grade nine boy who has struggled with cyberbullying and has all these issues if you can trust to just trust one teacher, just one right. teacher, find out, find out what the teachers are like. I understand yeah. that you can give the information to anybody, but find a teacher that you know has good reputation and trust them with that information mm. and then get them to help you parent their child. I have done that for all three of my children. I have made sure that there were colleagues that I was working with that were my students, te- my children's teachers, that they knew what my, my kid was suffering from if I knew I could trust them. Wow. Then, 
they help me parent my child. So reach out to each other. Remember that addi- addiction, the, the core of addiction is an external reach for internal well-being. Love Remember that. that conformity and all of the, the ideas of social norm and the yep. social media is absolutely primal. We yep. all fall into it, but that children's brains aren't fully developed yet. So we need to help yep. them with that. Remember that we need to set limits. We need to have rules around technology in our house and yep. it will not be easy. There will be fights and they will not like you. And you need to stick by your guns, not expand to it, not expect the teacher to only do it, to take the phones out of the classroom, but for you to take the phones out of their hands at certain times, dinner time, no phones in the hands, uh, bedtime, no phones in the hands. Those are two simple times where you should not be allowing phones uh, in their hands. Yeah. by the way, the same thing goes for our millennials in the workforce now, right? Absolutely. Talks about there should no, not be phones in the boardroom. There should be no phones in the boardrooms because that's how you and I as colleagues get to know each other. And then I start to care more about who you are. That's right. We have micro moments of you and I talking about your dad or your mom not being well. That's right. That's how we let's and let's start caring more. And we can't we you can't care enough. You know, you, you, it's, it's so important. And so I just want to say thank you, Trish. This has been an enlightening conversation. And I know that, you know, the, the listeners um, are, are feeling the same that I'm feeling. And I have a sense that there's still more in the Trish Wagner well that I need to, uh, <laughs> that I need to, I just gotta get, I gotta tap into that. And I, I hope I get to, I hope that you, you, um, give me another opportunity well, to thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. And I hope, I hope it helps some people. I know it helps me just talking about it. It just reinforces, right? We're always learning. Well, and I think another point of conversation is to talk about what you actually are doing in the classroom, because I think for parents and for grandparents or guardians or whomever, it it would be very helpful to, to really see what you're doing. Uh, it's, I know my daughter was in your class and I, I tell you, it created incredible conversation. And the fact that someone that I never met before was saying the things that I have been saying for years was the most powerful thing that, that, that it just beautiful. So thank you for doing all of this. And thank you for loving all of these kids that you've loved for 30 years. You truly are a treasure and, and, and there's something here that you have a, you are just amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.